Well, I, uh, I have a dollar in my pocket, and uh, I want you to see it, and I'd like to give this to somebody. I'd like to give this to somebody. Anybody want this? You come right up. I'll give you this. Just come. First person to get up here. Okay. Oh, oh okay. All right. All right. Yeah, I'm not going to give it to you, my own son, because I love you. All right. All right. You guys go back. You guys go back. Now, in my other pocket... I have five dollars, five dollars, and uh, I want to show this to you, okay, and if you come up, you can, you can have five bucks, all right, okay, all right, <laughs> now, in, in, my, uh, in this pocket here, I actually have ten dollars, and I want to show you that. Yeah. Oh, no, it's 20 It's $20, and, uh, and I want to give this to somebody, and you were the first person, so I'll give it to you. All right. Now, in my back pocket, I have $1,000 that I'd like... No, I'm just kidding. Go back, go back, go back, go back. No, no, no. No, no. There's selfish kids in this. No, I'm just kidding. All right. At least they didn't push each other over. God, God bless you little kids. The three kids who got that have something in common. Okay? They have something in common. They all heard about the money, they all saw the money, and they all responded to the money. The value of the money and their desire for the money compelled them to do something about it. To do something about it. When the truth of God's word is truly heard, and when the glory of God is seen in it and desired, then God's word inevitably produces life change or action. The goal that I have in preaching is to so proclaim the word of God that you hear it clearly, that you see the glory of God in it, and that you respond to it with obedience. Response. John 12 beautifully displays the glory of God in the cross. And it displays all that Christ accomplished for us there. And we need to hear about the cross. And we need to see the glory of God in the cross. And we need to respond to the cross with faith and obedience to Christ. Hear, see, respond. Hear, see, respond. So let's begin with the glory of the cross. Jesus lived to die. He came to die Jesus said, now is my soul troubled. He was shaken. He was agitated. He was unsettled. Why? Well, he said right before, the hour has come for the Son of Man, that's him, to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Can you see it? Can you see the glory of God? His soul was deeply troubled because of the impending cross. Not so much the physical pain of the cross, but primarily the approaching wrath of God in the cross. 
Jesus knew that enduring the cross meant bearing the weight of sin and the infinite wrath and righteous indignation of God. He knew he was the only one who could fully satisfy the justice of God on behalf of the people of God. Dr. Robert Raymond, who has influenced my thinking, a systematic theology guy, and he said this, God's wrath is simply his instinctive holy indignation and the settled opposition of his holiness to sin, which because he is righteous, expresses itself in judicial punishment. Leon Morris said God's wrath was his personal divine revulsion to evil. Though he was sinless, Jesus became sin on the cross as our propitiation to absorb the wrath and justice of God in our place. Facing the wrath of God is what troubled Jesus. He said, and what shall I say? And then what he says next is actually debated by scholars. Father, save me from this hour. Now, is that a prayer? Father, save me from this hour? Or a hypothetical prayer, something that he could have prayed, that he's suggesting. And I think it was a hypothetical, like saying, should I say, Father, save me from this hour? A question. Jesus was confident that he had come to this hour the hour of his crucifixion, not to be spared from the wrath of God, but to suffer the righteous indignation of God as the ransom for many. Part of the reason I believe that is what he said next. But for this reason, or for this purpose rather, I have come to this hour. What purpose? Certainly not to be saved. I think his purpose is twofold. Number one, to be glorified in death and to bear much fruit. And that's verses 23 through 25. And number two, to glorify God through his death. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. His glory and the glory of his Father are one and the same. The cross of Jesus was to glorify God's great name. Jesus desired his father to receive glory from his death. Jesus lived and died to make his father look glorious. Because the name of God is supremely glorious. And no other greater purpose exists for God than to glorify what is supremely glorious, his name. His name. Now if God is invisible, which he is, where do you look to see his glory? We see the justice and mercy, wrath and love, power and tenderness, judgment and pardon of God in the cross. Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. Why? Because Paul also said that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Preaching is proclaiming the power and wisdom of God in a slain Savior. So people hear and see and respond to the glory of God in the cross. The crowd heard him. Father, glorify your name. And just then came a voice from heaven. I will glorify it and I and I will glorify it, and I will glorify it again. God spoke 
from heaven. Just like at the baptism and and the transfiguration of Jesus. We know it was God because Jesus addressed God. Okay, and we know it was God because of what the voice said. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It refers to God's great name. How had God glorified his name before? Through the life of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the flesh. God was glorified through his teaching. God was glorified through his copious miracles. Jesus even said that Lazarus' illness was for the glory of God, which indeed was seen in Lazarus' miraculous resurrection. And how would God glorify his name again? Through the cross and resurrection of his only son. The crowd heard God's voice. But similar to naturalists and materialists, some cheapened it to thunder. Others were more spiritual and credited the voice to an angel. Their theories of material and supernatural causes were deaf to the truth. God had spoken from heaven for their benefit. Uh, but, they, but they couldn't discern the voice of God. Unbelievers are deaf to the voice of God. Once again, God confirmed Jesus as the Christ. God responded to the prayer of Jesus for the benefit of the crowd. Jesus said, this voice came for your sake, not mine. And I think what he meant was that they were the primary beneficiaries of it. Certainly, Jesus received some benefit and encouragement from hearing his his father's voice, but it was for them. Even though they failed to discern it, they heard supernatural response, a, a, a supernatural response from heaven authenticating Jesus Christ. That was a, a great gift to them. Well, Jesus continued in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The cross of Jesus brought judgment to the world and defeat to Satan. Judgment to the world and defeat to Satan. World refers to various things in the New Testament. In verse 31, world refers to everyone that is alienated and hostile to God. Those ruled by Satan. By killing the Son of God, a sin worthy of the strictest judgment, the world was inviting God's judgment upon themselves. Upon itself. Ironically, it is the cross which appears as victory for Satan, which ultimately defeats Satan. Jesus said, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This ruler, this, this evil one, Satan, and Jesus came to destroy him. 1 John 3.8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And through the cross, Satan receives his decisive defeat. Now, a basketball team losing by 80 points in the fourth quarter with two minutes to go, they might be able to score a few points at the end, but they've already lost. The game is already over. Now, Satan still has power, but only as a loser. He has lost. He's been conquered. The cross has broken the power of sin, broken the power of Satan, broken the power of death, and broken the power of hell. And what appeared to be the loss of a mighty battle was actually a conquest that won the war. 
Now, what does this have to do with you? For starters, if you are united to Christ by faith, your enemy is a conquered enemy. Your enemy has lost. Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That's awesome. That is awesome. God has disarmed the power of evil. Through the cross of Christ, being united to Christ makes His victory your victory. You are more than conquerors, are you not? With pervasive evil in the world, how will any of us survive this mess? Folks, look around. Look around. The world is a dark place. Ephesians 6 tells us that we are strong in the strength of the Lord's might. We are strength in His. We are strong in His strength that we can actually stand against the schemes of the devil if we put on the whole armor of God. And the armor of God is better than Kevlar. I don't know if you know anything about Kevlar. Kevlar is amazing. Kevlar is five times stronger than steel and it can stop a speeding bullet. The armor of God stops anything Satan shoots at you. The armor of God is invincible. Put it on. Put on truth. Put on righteousness. Put on the gospel. Put on faith. Put on salvation. And put on God's word. Only then you will withstand in the evil day. As Paul said. You must put on John 12 to survive the war. John 12 is truth that fuels your faith. Which Paul says extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. That's divine Kevlar. The truth of the cross helps you fight. The truth of the cross helps you win every day. What you believe directs how you behave. The strength of your faith is the strength of your fight. Jesus defeated Satan. When you look around at the brokenness of the world, always remember this. Evil is not winning. Evil is not winning. Christ has conquered Christ has already won. The world is already condemned. We follow Christ, the victor. So let me ask you, how has the cross empowered you? How is the cross helping you every day? Has the power of the cross transferred to your life? It can I wonder if it has. The cross proves that God is omnipotent and sovereign. Are you ready for this one? The cross of Jesus is effectual to save sinners from all nations. The cross of Jesus is effectual to save sinners from all nations. What I mean by effectual is effective. Is that the cross is not only sufficient to save people, but effective to save people. The cross uh, does more than make salvation possible. It actually accomplishes it. In the first century, 
lifted up from the earth was a euphemism for crucifixion. Verse 33 confirms that if you take a look. Even the crowd knew that lifting up meant dying. Jesus prophesied his death and even the method of his death. Now, have you ever thought that all the other murder attempts of Jesus completely failed? Why? Well, because it was ordained by God that Jesus would die on a cross. Not that he would be stoned, not that he would die of sickness, but that he would die on a cross. Now, the second part of verse 32 is what Christ accomplishes through the cross. And this is really, 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 really important. All right? So I want everybody to just take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. All right? Take a deep breath. We're going to dive down deeper into the glory of the cross. Through the cross, Jesus will draw all people to himself. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, I will draw all people to myself? Let's begin with the Greek word helko or draw. Okay, used only five times in John. Like many words, helko can mean different things in different contexts. It can mean to tug or to drag or forcibly drag someone into court or unsheath a sword. All right, in John 18.10, Peter drew his sword and he cut off Malchus's ear. Fishermen, you'll like this one. In John 21, Helco is used twice. The disciples were fishing, but like many of us sometimes, they weren't catching anything. Okay? And, and after casting their nets, uh, where Jesus instructed them to cast their nets, they were unable to helkusai or haul in their nets filled with fish, drawing in all the fish. And then when they got back to shore, Jesus asked them to bring some of the fish, and Peter went back onto the boat and helkusen or drew the net ashore. He drew the net full, full of fish ashore. The other two occurrences of Helco and John pertain to salvation. Salvation. So they wanted the imagery of that drawing to pertain directly to how people are saved. Salvation. Listen to John 6.44. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one possesses the ability or the power to come to Jesus unless unless one condition is met, unless the Father who sent Jesus draws him. It's not simply a potential drawing, but an effectual one, an effective one, because notice that those whom Jesus draws, he also raises up on the last day. They are saved. They will be saved. It is a definite reality. The drawing is effective to save. John 10 is another great place to go. You can find the sermon online or read it at home. Great, great place to see this point worked out. So when the Father graciously draws people, they inevitably come. His drawing is their coming. The only other place in John that Helco is used is here in John 12, 32. I will draw all people to myself. That's a definite, 
and future reality. He will absolutely draw all people to himself. All will be saved. Now, at this point, we should ask the question, is Jesus saying that every single person will be saved? Is that what he's saying? It sounds like that's what he's saying. But what does Jesus mean by all people? This is very important. Hang tough here. First, the word people is not in the Greek. Translators add the word people. The Greek word is pas, which simply means all, or the totality of something. It literally reads, I will draw all to myself. And we know who's drawing, it's Jesus. We know where he's drawing. He's drawing to himself for salvation. The question is, what does all mean in verse 32? Who is being drawn? Well, you can interpret all at least four different ways. Number one, Jesus draws absolutely everyone, but not everyone chooses to come, okay? But then the draw of Jesus would merely be a potential draw, not actually effective to bring or save anyone. But that's not what draw means, nor does it recognize what Jesus said would be accomplished by his drawing. The cross actually saves people. Study John 10. Or is it number two? Jesus draws and saves absolutely everyone throughout history. That's called universalism. Everybody gets saved, nobody perishes. In universalism, either there is no literal hell or judgment or punishment from God, or there is, but it only serves to reform individuals, making them ready to go eventually to heaven and not be condemned forever. Universalism is heresy. It denies the Bible's clear teaching on God's judgment. It even denies what Jesus said about judgment here in verse 31. All right, number three. Jesus draws and saves all kinds of people. The Bible is clear, those from all peoples, tribes, nations, languages will come to Christ. One commentary said this, by all men, it does not mean all people without exception, but rather all without distinction. This reminds us of the significant arrival on the scene of the Greeks and Jesus' immediate response about his death. Gentiles as well as Jews would be rescued through his death, end of quote. So all could mean all people without distinction, Jews and Gentiles from all nations, from all people groups, that that Jesus would save all people, all kinds of people. This is why some translators insert the word people in with all. You see that? The last one, last possibility, Jesus draws and saves all of his elect This is essentially a more precise way to state number three. Elect is a word that the Bible uses to describe God's chosen people. So Jesus will draw and save all of God's chosen people. Now out of these four interpretations, three and four are the most consistent with Scripture. In His infinite grace and love and wisdom, God has chosen to save some, and Jesus will draw all of them from all nations to Himself, and He'll do this through the cross. 
And this is not a foreign concept to what we've already studied in the book of John. John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus destroyed Jewish pride in John 8. Samaritans, of all people, called Jesus the Savior of the world in John 4.42. Jesus mentioned saving the Gentiles in John 10, 16. John eleven fifty two says that Jesus would not only die for Israel, but would gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And God's sovereign grace is all throughout John. You just need to give it a fair reading and you'll see God's sovereign grace. Now John Piper helpfully noted two other uh, passages in John where Jesus used the word pas or all, that are helpful to understanding John 12. Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's a certain and future reality. The other is John 17, 2, where Jesus said that God gave him authority to give eternal life to all whom God had given him. So in verse 32, Jesus likely meant he would draw to himself all that God gave him. Does your brain hurt yet? Some of you are like, (gasps) (laughs) I know you're tired. Uh, I know this is challenging. I know it requires biblical thinking even outside of John 12. But the deeper you immerse yourself in the cross, the more glorious God becomes And I hope you don't have just a surface view of the cross. Yeah, Jesus died for me and then I can go to heaven. Great, let's move on with our life. I hope that you can dig down and see all the nuances and all that Christ has accomplished for you in the cross. The cross is deep. You cannot exhaust it in this life. You cannot exhaust it in eternity. The cross is deep. And you have to go down deep with it in order to see the glory of God. Here is why this matters to you. Here is why we preach Christ crucified and we want people to see the glory of God in it. The cross of Jesus Christ is powerful and effective to save you. It's not just a potential. It's a reality when you trust in Christ. God's grace overcomes your sinful nature and draws you effectually to Christ to love and obey Him. And that's the best place to be. The cross gives you Jesus Christ. Jesus draws you to Himself to give you the greatest thing. Not just to give you things, but to give you the greatest thing, Himself. The cross destroys human boasting and exalts the sovereign grace of God. The bumper sticker is right, people. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We contribute absolutely nothing to our justification. We don't bring something to the table. Jesus saves. The cross is powerful to draw the worst of sinners. God's sovereign grace can save the most rebellious heart. You need hope with some people that you know in your life who are just so callous to the gospel. Don't you give up hope. God's sovereign grace is powerful enough to heal even them. The cross displays God's incredible love. God shows his love for us in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Christ didn't die for his best friends. Christ died 
to make his worst enemies his best friends. The cross exalts Jesus. We did nothing. Jesus did everything. Jesus deserves our worship and praise, not human free will. And so often in salvation, that's what you hear people praising. The choice. And not God's sovereign grace. No one would ever come to Jesus unless he drew them through the cross. Free will is only free because God's sovereign and drawing grace. Does verse 32 deepen your gratitude and stir you to greater obedience? What does this do? What does the cross do for you? How does it impact Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? And Thursday, and your life choices, and your career choices, and your directions. How does the cross make a difference in your life? It should make a huge difference. You see, when people really get the cross, they live it. They live it. There's nothing else to do. The cross of Jesus is unintelligible for those walking in darkness. The crowd in verse 34 didn't get it. So many people just don't get it. They don't get the cross. Any hockey fans in here? Raise your hand. Any hockey fans? There is one, three, two, three, four, two. Okay. All right. Can anyone make sense of this? Get your feet up, ice. Your head on a swivel. Keep your stick active and jump to a hole when the weak side D-man rims the puck to the winger on the half wall. So what does that mean? I don't know what it means, all right? If you don't know hockey, you won't be able to make sense of that. If you know hockey, you're probably like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, they got to get it to the D-man on the weak winger, half wall fell on the guy. I don't know. I mean, you probably get that. The crowd heard what Jesus was saying, but they didn't know or understand him. They they didn't get him. They said, verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And guess what? They were right about that. The Old Testament says that Christ remains forever. Check out sometimes 2 Samuel 7, 13, Psalm 89, Isaiah 9, 7. That's a really famous one. Ezekiel 37, 24, and 25. And maybe one of the more obvious ones is Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which says... One like a son of man would come to the ancient of days and be given an everlasting dominion which would never pass away. That's the the everlasting. It will have no end. The Christ remains forever. And the crowd knew the Old Testament, but they didn't know what it meant. And they didn't know at all how it applied to their lives. When they see the fulfillment right in front of them. Aren't we in danger of that? Just like they were? We may have gone to church for years, but still don't understand the cross and how it applies to our lives. When we really get it, we live it. So if Jesus is the Christ, and the Christ is forever, and Jesus is to be lifted up, how does that make any sense? (laughs) I think the crowd was sarcastic. Who is this son of man? Who is this son of man? He's eternal and he dies? (laughs) Okay, Jesus. 
All right, it didn't add up for them. They saw a perpetual earthly kingdom, not an otherworldly eternal kingdom. It was as if they overlooked the eternal application of the cross. It was a doctrinal issue. The crowd got some of the Bible right. They knew enough to be dangerous, but missed how it all culminated in Christ. They missed the entire point of the Old Testament. And heresy and false religions arise just like this. Verses are plucked out of the Bible, out of their context, and interpreted from a human vantage point. We will make the text say what we want it to say. The presuppositions of the crowd prohibited them from understanding what was going on. They walked in darkness. They walked in ignorance. They just didn't know. They didn't get it. Jesus didn't directly clarify their confusion. Instead, he showed them very graciously how he applied to their lives. Here's the application. Here's how to know where to go in your life. Here's how to know if you're making the right decisions. Here's how to know what the next step should be for you. Here's how to, how to bring clarity and how to shed some light on some of those dark areas where you're like, I just don't know about this in my life. What should I do? Here, here is the answer for you. The best way for you to know where to go is to look at everything in your life through the cross. See the glory of God in the cross and live out the implications of the cross in your life. The implications that the cross has on your life. Don't expect to make any sense of your life for anything to make any sense if you do not see it through the cross. Until you head directly to the cross and hear the cross, see the glory of God in the cross, and respond rightly to the cross. Jesus told the crowd how to respond. He's telling you exactly how to respond. Do exactly what Jesus said in these two verses, and you will know where you are going in your life. It would be clear to you. Days before his death, Jesus told the crowd, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Here's what he meant. He is the light and he is with them. For a little bit, he said back in 10, 8, uh, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the light. He was among them, but he was among them only for a little while longer. And then he would die and darkness would come. He would be killed. So he told them, walk while you have the light. And I take him to have meant, follow me now. Or live your life by faith in me and stay close to me now while I am with you. And I, and I get that from John 8, 12 and verse 36 where Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light. Walk, believe, walk by faith, stay close to me. Jesus was urging them to believe in him, to live in his light by trusting his word and putting complete confidence and hope in him. And Jesus told them exactly what would happen if they didn't. So he's being so clear. He's like, if you don't walk in the light 
if you don't stay close to me, I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. He said, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Or more literally, in order that darkness not overtake you. Stay close to me so that you do not get completely consumed by darkness, by evil. The consequence of not walking in the light of Jesus Christ is the darkness will invade and take you captive. It will own you. You will be consumed by the darkness. The darkness will gain control. Darkness dominates where the light does not shine. You might remember Super Bowl 47. All right, the game was suspended for over a half an hour because the lights went out. When lights went out, it had the power to stop the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl holds the record of the most televised TV. There's a couple Super Bowls that were at the top, but it was like over 111 million viewers or something. It's crazy. And darkness had the power to stop it in its tracks. No more. You're not playing. Uh-uh. You're not making your money. All right? Darkness stopped. If the light doesn't shine, the darkness wins. And Jesus said, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. That's ignorance. Walking in darkness is living in unbelief, and life is a mess in the darkness. Life is a mess in unbelief. Look at people who don't love Jesus with all of their heart. Their lives are a complete mess. That's not to say those who love Jesus are perfect, everything's Great. It's a mess, but we have hope in the mess because we're following someone who's not a mess and his name is Jesus and he's leading us into the light. When the darkness overtakes someone, it's sad. They can't see anything and they don't know where they're going and their choices and their thoughts and their decisions, they, they all reflect that they have no idea what's going on But what about the people who don't know Jesus but are intelligent and they're successful and they're goal-driven and they appear quite happy without Jesus? Think of it this way. A steady diet of ice cream, donuts, soda, and fast food might taste good, but no matter how you slice it, it's not good for you. Too much sugar will cause long-term health problems that then lead to other long-term health problems, weight gain, diabetes, impaired immune system, increased chances of depression, and chronic diseases. The no-Jesus successful happy people are like the health gurus. They're like health gurus on an all-sugar diet, all amped up about stuff, and convincing other people that by pleasing their taste buds, they will get healthy and feel good when in actuality their lifestyle is uninformed and extremely dangerous and sometimes the impact of those choices takes a long time to get there it's years and then it comes all at once and how much regret when you look back saying "Hmm, I shouldn't have made those choices imagine if that is at the point of Jesus Christ's return and there is no more time Oh, the preciousness of the cross now. Seeing something wrongly can be as dangerous as not seeing something at all. Both are darkness. Not seeing a truck headed at you at 80 miles an hour is extremely deadly. But so is seeing the truck and thinking that it's a happy golden retriever puppy coming to welcome you home. 
Both are darkness and both are equally deadly. You can take delight in the things of the world, but you only find out later that the Mack truck just splashed you on the road. The further you are from the light of Christ, the darker and more confusing life becomes. Jesus pleaded with the crowd to listen to him, to look to him, to see him, the light of the glory of God, to believe in him, and then live in his light and follow him as sons of light. How you live your life is based entirely on what you really believe to be true, what you value most. This is why the cross is so important because the deeper you understand and cherish the cross, the more strength you draw from it and the more it influences your everyday choices and influences the direction of your life. Think how differently you would live this week if you looked at everything through the lens of the cross. You've heard, hopefully you've seen the glory of God in the cross. I wonder if you'll respond. I think all of you will respond, but I wonder what your response will be. How about I pray that we respond how God wants us to respond to the cross? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I beg of you by your divine mercy and infinite wisdom and grace to help us by your word and the power of your spirit in us to respond to the cross the right way. I pray that we respond with worship. I pray that we respond with joy. I pray that we respond with with comfort and peace and love and service, giving our lives for each other, giving our lives for a lost and dying world who is perishing and condemned right now. Jesus said it was so. I pray that we hear and see and respond by sharing the gospel with a friend or a family member or a neighbor. I pray that we respond to the cross by choosing not to do that specific sin anymore and committing to it. Committing to to you to follow you right out of harm's way of that sin. I pray that we will respond to the cross by giving our lives to following you in wisdom. We know that the Great Commission says to make disciples, but it says to teach them to observe or to obey all that you commanded us. And so maybe we respond by studying our Bibles more so we can know what you want us to do and then take seriously what we read and live it out. And I pray that your Holy Spirit does this. God, one little message that gets amped up about the words of Jesus doesn't change anybody's life. The Holy Spirit changes people's lives. The truth changes people's lives. And I pray that some people hearing this today will see the glorious gospel, the glorious cross, the glory of you, God, and would respond like they've never responded before. That they'll actually do something in response. That they'll get up and move forward trusting you to guide them exactly where you want them to go. Give them confidence in that. And God, lead us in a church we want to believe and we want to we do and respond to you. Not because we can earn something from you, simply because we love you. And we want to obey you because we know it's best for us and we know it's what glorifies you. Help us to be captivated by the cross. In the name of Jesus we pray.